This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to the latest Blood Red podcast from Liverpool Echo. It's Monday, I'm Joe Rimmer and I'm joined by two, sorry, three fine gentlemen. Uh, one just moving out shot there uh, to discuss <laughs> Liverpool's draw with Aston Villa and final home game of the season against Aston Villa. Um, we'll start with you, Theo. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, would have been a bit better if uh, Liverpool had managed to get a win on uh, Saturday. It was a nice send-off for a few of the departing players and means we can be on the beach for this final week, can't we? I think we can officially say top four's gone now, even if it is still mathematically possible. Well, well, we'll know a little bit more later, won't we? I think if, if Newcastle lost later, maybe a bit more would go into um, into the final day. But yeah, I, I, I sort of agree. Uh, Gorsty, how are you doing? Yeah, all good. Busy morning as always. Working from home. You want to um, introduce yourself? Yeah, the little fella here. Frankie on your knee. Yeah, for those watching on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Um, like Theo says, it's um, a bit of a bit of a frustrating end to the the final home game of the season, wasn't it? On, on Saturday, I'm sure we'll get into it. But enough signs in the last sort of what well, six or seven weeks, eight weeks that Liverpool are uh, they have turned the corner from what's been a pretty otherwise you know a very difficult campaign yeah yeah i mean it, it, it's a weird one because like the the result um just sticking with you ghost it was frustrating wasn't it mm. a, a draw and you know they, they they'd gone on this seven match winning streak and you know you, you're sort of hoping they could sneak into the champions league but weirdly doesn't hasn't felt even in the aftermath of the game and and yesterday and, and perhaps today like people are too ta- downhearted over it like missing out the Champions League isn't the be all and end all that I thought it might have been. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think people might have reasonably have expected it not to have come, given the how poor Liverpool were for for certain parts of the season. Probably the the, the poor start he made, the, the terrible January that they, they endured, uh, and just you know disappointing results along the way. You know, you look at when they beat United seven 0 in March, and then they go and lose at uh, Bournemouth the following week. Uh, back-to-back defeats to, I think they were back-to-back anyway, to Forrest and Leeds. Um, just little results like that here and there. You know, I've, I've considered how poor Liverpool have been, the fact that they're only just going to miss out on the Champions League means that if they get their act together next season and back to anywhere near the levels that they have been generally in the last five years, that it shouldn't be too much of an issue for them to qualify next season. Um, but... We're going to have to take the medicine on this one and, and it looks like Thursday nights are going to be the order of the day for Liverpool. And Look, uh, I'm sure Ian Clark will rest and rotate for those games, but I see no reason why Liverpool don't have a good enough squad to go and really challenge for that. And uh, It's the one that they kind of have one under Klopp, isn't it? So um, why not go for it? But I think I think you're right, Joe. I think the, the reaction to it all has basically been because I don't think anyone's ever really expected Liverpool to get into the top four. Once the uh, once they were beaten by Bournemouth in what was mid March, so well, well over two months ago now. Yeah, I mean, you know, I had this jotted down to speak about at the end, but let's just tackle it now. Yeah, it has been a weirdly positive end to the season. Obviously, the the results have have, have helped that, but does it feel like it's been a reminder that Liverpool aren't far from their best and can be back there next season? Uh, yeah, to an extent, like. It has been a strange season, I think, for everyone. Like You look at all the sides. City haven't run away with it as much as they normally do, yet they're still going to get a ridiculous amount of points. Like They've got Haaland scoring so many goals, and it still doesn't feel like they've been 
absolute peak Man City until maybe the last few weeks, and yet they're still going for a treble. And you look at Manchester United, how excited their fans were getting about Ten Hag and all this. They just seem to have been poor for half the season. Newcastle, fair enough, they deserve it. They deserve to be in that top four. But they've drawn a ridiculous amount of games. Arsenal, I think we can look at their, their results since drawing that two-all game at Anfield. And they have choked to an extent. Chelsea guaranteed to finish in the bottom half. Tottenham have just been woeful. Like that, They'll probably finish outside of Europe at this rate if they hard put in a good performance on the final day of the season. So it's not just Liverpool that have been letting themselves down across the campaign. And the fact that they have managed to find form in these last, what, six, seven weeks, putting in some good performances. Like Klopp said during this run, we're looking towards next season now. It's about taking lessons from this, what's gone wrong this season, what's gone right this season that we can use next year. And that's why we've seen like Trent doing this inverted fullback role. It's why we're seeing more of Curtis Jones. It's why we've had this uh, back four, which is probably the first choice back four, actually getting a run of games together. We've had... Diaz getting more minutes from back from injury. Jota getting more minutes. Gakbo just continuing down the middle. It's about taking these lessons into next year. And there are positives there. Like Villa was probably most disappointing performance in a while. Yet there was still that fighting spirit and the fact that they got the late goal at the end. It wasn't just, oh, we're going to sulk now. Bournemouth are already losing to United. Top four is probably out of our reach. Uh, we'll just wait for Firmino and Milner to come on and then see how without really doing much. Like Liverpool were pushing forward without really threatening Martinez too much. And they, they got the goal they pretty much deserved. Uh, and there's enough there to be positive. Like new sporting director that's on the verge of being appointed. No, they're interested in McAllister, Mason Mount, Graven Birch. Realistically, we're going to be looking at what? Four or five signings this summer, potentially. You'd imagine they're going to have to spend comfortably more than 100 million. They're going to have to have the biggest or the most active transfer window since the last time they're out of the Champions League in 16-17. Uh, There's enough there to keep Liverpool fans on their toes, to keep them talking, to keep them interested and excited going into the summer. And then if you got rid of the injuries, got this fresh start, they can go again next year. And while you'd say City are in a good place, Arsenal, Newcastle, United are all in a good place, Liverpool are too. Hopefully they'll be uh, in a much stronger position at the end of next season. And we can also talk of, it is this day next year, the Europa League final in Dublin. The countdown starts now, 366 yeah. days. Yeah, that's it. We, we spoke about that the other day, didn't we? And, and now, won't, won't reveal who, who, but a former Echo colleague texts this morning saying, oh, you're not even going to get the Champions League laughing laughing at me. But I, I said to him, <laughs> all about the Europa League now, don't want the Champions League. Dublin, Dublin uh, 24 is, you know, I've already started making phone calls to friends in Dublin to sort of sort some accommodation. You know, let, you know, I think it's um it's on, it's on. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm pleased with that. Gorsley, um, Theo just mentioned a number of teams there. You know, who sort of have uh, in theory had better seasons than Liverpool, but uh, it, it's a weird one in the sense that personally, if I was betting next season, I bet Liverpool to be Man City's closest challenges again. I still think after this this run, they've shown us that they've got great quality in the squad, and with two or three signings, or, or even more than that, four or five signings, they could be really right up there and challenging. Do you, do you share that belief? Do you, or do you think there's they've still got more ground to make up? Yeah, I do actually, because I mean, I'm not sure the exact statistic, but I think Liverpool have got the same amount of points as Arsenal since football came back after the World Cup. Um, and if you look at how kind of disappointing some of some of that has been, you know mm. that run of form in, in that run, 
certainly January when Liverpool went to Brentford and Wolves and Brighton and, and they lost all three. Um, they have still shown in the sort of last two months, shall we say, that um, they can still amass a, a lot of points and put together a good run. And I think that was always a, a bit of a thing that held people back, kind of saying that Liverpool were going to get top four because there were question marks over whether they still had it in them to go on this kind of run. They're unbeaten now in nine. And, and OK, Saturday was a bit of a frustrating one. And you can talk about the goal of straw at Chelsea is a bit of a nothing game. And, and the first half against Arsenal in particular was a poor one. But Liverpool on a nine-game unbeaten run is, is still a really strong stretch of form, isn't it, over quite a prolonged period. So you can still do it. It's just a case of getting this massive summer right, getting the right yeah. players in. Um, and what they do around it that's already at the club, you know, the likes of Stefan Bajetic, whether he can can, can come forward. Um, Thiago Alcantara, notice was on crutches on Saturday. Looks like he might have already have had his surgery to, you know, to um, in an effort to make sure that he's there, ready for... For the start of next season, I think he can still be an important player next season along with whoever else comes in. So, you know, across the club, there's still a lot to be excited about. It's just a shame that uh, it's going to be a year out of the Champions League. And, and I do only expect it to be to be a year out of it. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, uh, you know, I look at, look at the players they've got and the quality they've shown. There have been some real lows this season. You mentioned before, Gorsi Leeds at home. You look at Leeds now and think, how did Liverpool manage to lose a game? To Leeds anywhere, never mind at Anfield, and and then obviously that Brentford game at the turn of the year was was awful. Wolves away, but but I can't imagine, and I haven't looked, so I might be wrong, but I can't imagine there'd be many teams other than Man City who've gone the a run like Liverpool have just had, um, unbeaten in ten, winning win seven in a row. Um, you know, I don't think Man United or or even Arsenal. Maybe Arsenal towards the start of the season, but they won't have done that very often. So I just thought it was a reminder of the quality Liverpool have, and I still think, I still think if they get it right in the summer, which they do more often than not, they, they'll they'll pull themselves back above the likes of United, Newcastle. I think face a really tough time, and whether Arsenal can bounce back because you know Liverpool know firsthand after last season how it takes a while sometimes to get over a devastating blow like like Arsenal are putting up with now. So it'd be interesting. Um, we're talking about summer signs. We're talking about Liverpool getting that right, Gorsty. Today they um, took one step closer to appointing Julian Ward for replacement Jörg Schmadke, um, formerly of Wolfsburg. Um, looks like he's going to come out with um, a short retirement and sign a short-term deal at Liverpool. What's the latest on that? And um, yeah, what well, says Liverpool get themselves get themselves ready for the summer pretty quickly. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, so we, so we set to fly in this week uh, till probably the end of this week. He'll come in to finalise finalise what needs to be done, whether it's just a case of dotting the I's and crossing the T's. I don't know, but Liverpool seem very confident, or people have spoken to that. Liverpool seem very confident that he will be the new sporting director. Um, a little bit of a of a departure from what Liverpool have been used to under the sporting director model. Obviously, Michael Edwards was first appointed as as that title in 2016 and, and his kind of underling, Julian Ward, has risen through the ranks to be, officially become his assistant and then take over the reins, you know, last summer. Uh, and this is very much a, um, a change in, in strategy, if you like. He's 59-year-old, uh, cantankerous, outspoken sort of character, if you, you believe what you, you listen to and what you read in, in the German media. Um, 
but someone who's got a proven track record wherever he's been, you know, under his, his kind of watchful eye with Wolfsburg, they got back into the Champions League a couple of years ago. That's probably the, the height of, of his achievements uh, in German football. But, um, yeah, so Liverpool's very, uh, you know, I've said that a few times now that Liverpool have certainly been front-facing towards next season for quite some time now. Certainly since around the last international break, I think I think that's where it all crystallised and they accepted that maybe they wouldn't be getting the, the top four or that it'd be a really tall order. And that maybe as well, that uh, you know, the X amount of money to price Julian Be- uh, Jude Bellingham away from Dortmund was probably better used elsewhere. And it's all started to, to gather pace. Uh, we were speaking to Virgil van Dijk after the game on Saturday and he said he was very excited about what's to come in, in Liverpool's you know, short to medium-term future. And I think, despite missing out on the Champions League, there's still a lot to, to look forward to. You know, the, the players who were going to come in, uh, the new sporting director on the agenda, you know, hired to essentially conclude those deals. New Anfield Road project on the way. That'll be completed one in time for next season. Uh, so there's still lots to be excited about. And, uh, you know, George Schmacker is seemingly the, the guy who's going to come in and, and overtake Julian Ward and... Um, that seems to be very much a short-term arrangement at the moment, and then plenty of scope for it to develop. The fact that he's, you know, he's had to come out of retirement for it suggests that as much as anything. The fact that he's fifty-nine, you know, I think Julian's possibly early forties, and all Michael Edwards is, is maybe 44, 45. So it's a little bit of a change in strategy, but um, we'll see what uh, what comes of it. A change in strategy, Theo, but but one thing that Schmeichel seems to do is. He seems to get value, doesn't he? He's been at some unfashionable, should we say, German clubs. He's not he's not known for spending millions upon millions. He he, he sort of shops in a different end of the market. And I, I don't think this is an indication that Liverpool are doing that, but we know that Liverpool, when they're in the transfer market, look to get as much value as they can, not just in buying players, but selling players as well. Um, some of his better signings. Anthony Modest was a, um, a bit of a journeyman forward played in France and then came to Germany and they brought brought him in from Hoffenheim at Cologne, uh, Cologne sorry and, and, and he, he did very well there. Um Main Biram Duf went to United. We've got a few more here. Um Bittencourt from Dortmund. So you know he, he's not someone that signs Wout Weghurst actually he signed him. Um who signs big big name players but that's what Liverpool do don't they maybe on a, a bit of a, a higher scale but they look to sign players and, and make them into stars perhaps, rather than signing always the finished article. I think that's what makes this uh, an intriguing appointment, because it is the, the highest platform of his career as a sporting director. He's very much helped clubs um, be like the Davids to the Goliaths and punch above their weight and get success. Like Even his first role, which with um, Aachen, who are a second division mm-hmm. side in Germany, he got them to the cup final, or helped get them to the cup final, which got them into UEFA Cup. And then they won promotion to the Bundesliga, and they're a side that had massive debts at the time so that was huge for them like we're talking 20 years ago uh former Liverpool striker Eric Meyer was a, a big part of that I think he was a captain for when they were winning promotion and all of this but you kind of want this sporting director who's maybe had to fight more for that success who's had to be a bit more shrewder a bit more shrewd with the um the finances because Liverpool aren't a Manchester City they're not a Newcastle United they can't go to whichever player whichever club they want and go how much do you want here's a blank check for wages and everything get it they need to be a bit more 
I suppose, sensible with it, as we've seen from pulling back from Bellingham. Now they're having to balance the books a little bit in terms of spinning so many plates to get the players they need. The fact that he has is going to have more quality players to work with, he's going to have more money to work with. Interesting to see how that translates over what he can do with it. And it's a short-term appointment, as Gorsty says. But if it's a success and it does turn into something more long-term and he gets the hunger there to keep on doing it, it could be a successful appointment. And it's one we should be excited for as media as well, because like all fans too, like Michael Edwards only did his open letter. Julian Ward, you don't hear for them. But we're, we're getting this per, um, idea that George Schmachter is very outspoken. And in Germany, they're more outspoken anyway. Like sporting directors, the more general managers doing like interviews every match day. So if we're going to hear from him more than we've heard from Liverpool sporting directors in the past, maybe going to get a bit more insight into what Liverpool are doing behind the scenes in terms of transfers, who they want to bring in. He's just hoping he doesn't fall out with a, a Jurgen Klopp or anyone like that along the way because he's apparently got a bit of rep- reputation for that. But it's not just a one-man show. Like Liverpool's still got Barry Hunter, Dave Fallows behind the scenes. They've got the whole recruitment team. Klopp's going to be involved. They've pretty much been carrying on as they mean to with the, the transfer business for this summer. And Schmacht has just come in to help get it over the line. So you think it's going to be business as usual for Liverpool, uh, carrying on what they've been doing for all these years under Edwards, under Ward, making relatively successful signings for the majority with only a couple of misfires along the way. That's well, it, well, it? Sorry, go on. Go on. Yeah, I was just going to say, what I, what I think is interesting about this appointment is it's going to be a little bit of a departure for, for Schmacker as well. In, in Germany, the sporting directors are, are at the very least the, the kind of equal of the head coaches, aren't they? If not, they're superior. Uh, as Theo says, very uh, outspoken um, in both senses of that. They, they're not afraid, they're not, they're not backwards in coming forward. The team certainly Schmacker from everything you hear. But also as well, they're happy to talk to the media. Uh, the likes of you know uh, Michael Zork at, at Dortmund and, and plenty of others across, across the Bundesliga. They always seem to be speaking a lot to the media, which is something that Julian Ward and Michael Edwards never, ever did. Um, but for Schmacker, he's perhaps going to have to come in with the acceptance that Jürgen Klopp is still very much the uh, the head honcho of of the entire football operations, really. What he says goes, and he'll obviously listen to opinions and value opinions throughout, but ultimately you can't uh, fall out with Klopp because, um, you know, what he says goes at Liverpool. So I think that's going to be an interesting thing behind the scenes. And uh, obviously we won't find out too much about that, you'd imagine, but it's still uh, still going to be an interesting way of working for for everyone involved, I guess. Just before we move on, it, you know, I, I think Theo mentioned before, it's a team thing. I do think in recent seasons, the probably the fact that they don't talk, the myth of, of Michael Edwards certainly sort of was like a big thing at Liverpool, wasn't it, recently? Um, Julian Ward to a lesser extent, but we shouldn't forget, should we, Gorsley, that it is a team thing and that there are other people behind the scenes. Barry Hunter, Dave Fallows are, are obviously big, big people behind the scenes that we don't hear from, we don't see. A lot of Liverpool fans won't even know what they look like, but these are guys who've worked there for the last, what, six, seven years, been a big part of what Liverpool do, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think there's sometimes a little bit of a misconception with sporting directors that they are the guys who identify the players and then mm. essentially go and bring them to the club, and, and they're not. Uh, they, I think maybe I th- we've probably got to hold our, our hands up ourselves on this and say that we kind of perpetuated the the magic yeah, yeah. of Michael Edwards maybe more than, than any other, but it's very much a, a collective thing. Uh, the data, the, the, the 
scouting reports and, and all that kind of stuff. It's not necessarily just George Schmacker pulling the player out of the air and saying, right, this is the guy for us and then go, yeah. go and brings him in. He is very much the lead on the negotiations and the one who's kind of got to be proactive with dealing with agents and the clubs and the negotiation process and all that kind yeah. of stuff. But it's not necessarily uh, Schmacker saying, well, Liverpool want Alexis McAllister, but I'm not that big on him. So instead, we're going to sign this guy from Hertha Berlin or whatever it might be. It's, uh, that's not... Particularly how it works, but I also like the fact that he's a bit of a, an apparently no nonsense, um, you know, a straightforward operator that surely lends itself towards um, good negotiating. You'd, you'd imagine, anyway. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, we'll see arrivals in the summer, but Theo, some emotional farewells on Saturday. Um, have you? Can you remember in recent history, certainly, a player leaving with with a, a bigger outpouring of love than um, Roberto Firmino? I mean, it it has been just several days of of, of Firmino loving, hasn't it? And he, you know, it was fitting that he would come on and score um, the equaliser on Saturday. It's a shame he couldn't score a winner, but but yeah, I mean, it was an incredible occasion, wasn't it for him? Yeah, it was. And I think this is why it's a good thing that he came out and said he was leaving a couple of months ago. Like You can understand why Sadio Mane didn't last year because they still had the Champions League final. But it was handled very differently, wasn't it? Like, at least us having these two months to work up to it. Everyone could prepare for themselves for Firmino is going to go. And there could be this way to pay tribute to him. Because you think of so many players that have been part of this journey over recent years and there hasn't been that proper send-off whether it's just because Liverpool haven't made a big show of it, they've announced after the season they're out of contract, they're going to leave, whether it's a Daniel Sturridge or an Alberto Moreno, a Moreno, or you're in the pandemic and fans aren't there, like a Lovren, a Lallana, um, even Genie Wijnaldum, there's only, what, 10,000 fans there for his final game and it was a will he, won't he sign a new contract? They were still hinting that he wanted to, but there was that resignation that he wouldn't. I We knew Divock Origi was going to leave last year, but injury meant he couldn't play. Uh, he's still got the the same sort of send-off in terms of a lap of honour. But this is that first true send-off. It's like, right, we know you're going to leave. You've been such a club legend. We love you anyway. And you get to go and see him play for that final time. You get to go and see him make that impact and score that decisive goal. It's like Roy of the Rovers sort of stuff. It's not quite the fairy tale of Firmino scoring the goals that gets Liverpool into the top four against the odds. But he's still, still got that one final point. He's got that 110th goal. Uh, we'll see if there's one outing left in his legs, if they let him play uh, against Southampton or if this is shake your hands, pack up the home and go on holiday now, start your new life already. You can argue both ways, couldn't it? Whether Firmino wants to be part of it or if he wants to make sure he doesn't risk injury and has that Anfield send-off as the perfect farewell. But it's gone on for so many days, isn't it? Like he had his um, little party, I think, at Anfield yesterday with his friends, his teammates. Um, but on the way, he went to the mural, didn't he? And you saw all the fans there taking pictures with him, uh, singing his song. Saw it at Leicester, all the away fans chanting for endless amount of time. And he is just this Liverpool legend that you don't have a bad word to say about. Maybe part of that is because he's been barely spoken the whole time he's had his Liverpool career. So hasn't, there's a, a bit of a myth about him as well, like what sort, of, sort of character is. He, he doesn't speak, he's just always smiling. But he was born to entertain and you watch him on the pitch and while he's not sort of like a Coutinho, for example, that would put it in the top corner from 30 yards, but he still always entertained you, whether it was um, setting up goals with the flamboyant back heels, 
and just being the, the man in the right place at the right time to pop up with a, a last-minute volleyed equaliser against Aston Villa. He's just got so many big moments in his Liverpool career. And um, he was never the star, star man, but he didn't want to be. He was happy being that supporting act, and that's what makes you love him even more. But he is, rest assured, one of these biggest Liverpool legends. And like Klopp's been saying in recent weeks, you'll realise how good Salah was when he retires. We'll appreciate for me, know that a little bit more. Now he's soon to be not a Liverpool player and when he hangs up his boots in the future as well. Of course, I think you could say the same about James Milner, who also is departing and got a good send-off on Saturday. I mean, I think um, Liverpool will miss him around the dressing room, but judging by some quotes from him, it, it sounds like mm. Pop was keen to keep him around, but the club perhaps took a, a bigger decision and decided it was fine to part ways. Frankie's not happy about that either. Yeah. <laughs> Big James Milner fan. Yeah, I mean, Clough, Clough uh, got asked about him earlier in the season, possibly January, and uh, I think he said something like, we've got different ideas. And, and at the time, mm. it felt as though Klopp wanted to keep him there, but also this idea that we want to keep him here more as a, you know, as a, as a person than, than a player, if you like, uh, given the, you know, the importance that he can bring as a coach you know, off the field when he used to come. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Miller wants to keep playing, doesn't he? And fair play to him. He's, he's still going strong at the age of 37. So, if he can have another year or two in the Premier League, then good luck to him. But no doubt, a Liverpool legend, absolutely. What What is Frankie so upset about? Milner leaving? There's a, well, yeah, Milner leaving, Firmino leaving. He always had a soft spot for Navigator, so he's, he's, he's taking a hard the last few days. <laughs> is he one of those people sending Theo some tweets? Um, yeah, so the final two departures, we discussed them at length on Friday, so I don't want to go over them, but yeah, also seem to get good send-offs, Cater and, and, um, and Oxide Chamberlain, Theo. Yeah, they did, and it is deserved. Like You can say what you want about the injury records and whether they've lived up to their full potential, but they still depart having won every single trophy and been a big part of this Liverpool chapter. Uh, it's a shame that they too couldn't get those final appearances you think there's probably an agreement there behind the scenes that they wouldn't just because the injuries they have, you don't want them to come on for five minutes and then to, I don't know, tear a muscle, be out for three months, and then it derails them for finding that next club. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oxley Chamberlain hasn't actually, I don't think, been injured for much this season since he came back in um, after pre-season, but he's not been in the matchday squad since that City game. Like Liverpool put other players back from injury and they have phased him out. Whereas Naby Keita, it's been a bit more curious. Like he didn't, hasn't played since getting subbed at half-time against Crystal Palace. He got an injury in the, the March international break. And then you see him running outside. Klopp doesn't say he's a long-term absentee, but he's still not been back in team training. So maybe then that's just a protection for him in the long term. Like you don't need to throw him in for a game on the off chance it gets in top four when you've got other options there. But their, their stories for Liverpool won't be decided by the odd substitute appearance here and there. Now it'll be what they've achieved earlier in their careers when Liverpool win in the trophies. Whereas Firmino and Milner have still contributed right the way to that final whistle. Like it's Milner who takes a free quick quickly and passes it over to Harvey Elliott for Firmino's equaliser. We've already talked about Firmino's goals. Um, there will be big players to replace because of the quality they showed when they were fit, when they are available. And they're just valuable squad players as well. Like the fact that you could have a first choice Liverpool midfield at their peaks of Henderson, Fabinho and Thiago. And you could still have Thiago pushing to get into that. And he did many times last season, be it Thiago getting injured in the League Cup final. He came in for the FA Cup semi-final. He played a lot of big games, Naby Keita. Oxlade-Chamberlain less so, but he still stepped up when their players at the Africa Cup of Nations or they're injured, scored goals. 
Um, that's almost as hard to replace because what you talk about Liverpool starting eleven, you want that as strong as possible. But as Man City have shown, it helps if you've got quality off the bench that can come in and make it pretty seamless as well. Like City's bench yesterday was absolutely ridiculous, wasn't it? Like that nine, those nine men could have beaten many a team in the Premier League. And that shows how strong their squad is. So whoever replaces a cater, Knoxley Chamberlain, going to pick up that mantle and do exactly the same thing without the injuries. The game itself, of course, it was a bit of a frustrating one, but there's a couple of things I, I wanted to highlight. First of all, um, a pretty baffling VAR decision. Um, so Cody Gakpo's equaliser ruled out. I've watched it a few times since. I was just watching it just before we came on this podcast. Still can't really work out why the referee's chosen to, to decide that um, the touch from the Aston Villa defender was, um, yeah. wasn't was deliberate. Um, um you know, perhaps the direction that it, that it got sent wasn't de- deliberate, but certainly looks to me like he, he tries to play it. I mean, is this just an, another example of how VAR, VAR makes things just so much more complicated? The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we were in the ground, obviously, and we didn't really know why it was, yeah. why it was not given. We didn't know who was offside, or that was Diaz or was Van Dijk or, yeah. or whatever. And then you realise that the referee has um, not made a, a, an objective call with offside. He's gone to the monitor and decided that Ezra Conter's kind of flick yeah. was not deliberate. So Van Dijk, as a result, is, is offside as opposed to being onside from that touch. A uh, bit of a nonsense of a decision, that one. To be honest, I, I don't think anyone... Can say for certain that Edry Conter didn't mean to touch that. It looks certainly like he tries to kind of just heal it away for a for a corner kick and can't quite get enough on it. And then Van Dijk is 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 active again. Uh, the conspiracy theorists are out suggesting that John Brooks, who was of course the official who Jurgen Klopp shouted or celebrated in the face of a couple of weeks ago in Tottenham, was uh, out to maybe prove a point. Um, don't have a buy into all of that, but it's uh, it's an easy one to reach for, isn't it? When you see officials making strange decisions like this, I hate talking about referees. I think it's the most boring, reductive conversation you can ever have. But when you see the the cast iron mistakes that they are making like this, you do start to well, you're left with no choice but to moan about it, or, or you know, critique it. And us as journalists, I suppose, are different to fans, where fans are rightly going to be. Unhappy with the fact that Cody Gakpo's goal is ruled out. Uh, the fact that Tyro Mings doesn't get sent mm-hmm. off despite leaving a huge kind of scab right the way down Cody Gakpo's chest. Strange decisions. Um, sometimes you get them, sometimes you go, you don't. But yeah, it, it really was it was a baffling one for me, the, the, the goal, because Konza absolutely definitely is trying to get that away for a corner. Well, even, if, even if he's not trying to put it out for a corner, he's reaching to touch the ball. So, Therefore, it's deliberate, isn't it, Theo? You know, you, if he if he interferes with play, and he, it's it's a deliberate action, isn't it? That's why I don't understand. It's not as if he was facing the opposite direction; it just rebounded off him. Yeah, exactly. That that is not deliberate. If he's facing the wrong way, it's bounced off his like, head, and yeah. he's gone behind for a corner that way. But then, if he's facing the wrong way and it's come off the back of his head, then he's doing something considerably wrong, considering he's basically in the six-yard box when he attempts to clear this. Like, if you're a defender in the six-yard box and a cross is coming in or whatever, you are trying to clear it. He is trying to get that ball out. It doesn't matter who any of the Liverpool players are, where they are. A ball is in the box. It is close to goal. The defender is trying to get it out of play. Just because he, he makes an absolute mess of it and mm-hmm. it falls to Van Dijk doesn't change from that fact. Like If he'd half cleared it and it had gone the right way, and 
it's a goal, isn't it? It's fine. Like if Curtis Jones or whatever it falls to them, they bend it in. And it's just a really weird way to view the rule. Like when VAR came in, it was supposed to clear up the obvious errors of the officiating teams. You're supposed to, at the same time, give the benefit of the doubt to the attacking team. Like you want to see goals. You don't want to go to a game and see a nil-nil. You, if it's slightest margin on offside, like we saw with Curtis Jones's pretty much both his goals against Leicester. Like if they'd done the actual margin, say, oh, he's offside here, and it's that tiniest margin, no one wants to see that. You want to see the benefit of the doubt because you want to see goals. So with this one, when it is so subjective and everyone's looking at it and going, well, he's clearly meant to play that, for them to decide, oh, he's not meant to go that way, so it's not deliberate. It's just a baffling reading of the rule. Um, it's something that we said before. They need to have a, another look at VAR, how they address it. But it seems like if no one wants to make a decision themselves, do they? Like the referees, they they want to still have some sort of control on it. They want to have that power, but the VAR doesn't want to go and say we're not really sure about this one. So just give benefit of the doubt. It's still very hard, and it, it makes a mess of things. Like granted, Liverpool probably didn't deserve to win against Aston Villa. And Villa would be a bit aggrieved if Firmino's goal was actually a late winner. But Cody Gakpo scored a goal that I think 95% of football fans will think, yep, that should have been goal. And if their team had scored it, yep, they're fuming, should have been a goal. And if you concede it, you just sort of accept that, yeah, it probably should count. It's a really weird way for them to decide it wasn't deliberate. It just adds an extra layer of um, of confusion onto, you know, people have moaned about referees since the, the, the beginning of time, it's not going to change. And, and I think VAR was meant to perhaps take the pressure off them, but I think by sending John Brooks that monitor and saying to him, go on, do you think that this is deliberate or not? Um, he's then made the decision where he says, well, I think it is deliberate. Um, sorry, he isn't deliberate. Um, it, it means that we can watch that replay time and time again and say, how in the world did he think that that wasn't deliberate? And it, it just makes makes for him life even more difficult. So I think they've put more pressure on referees with VAR and it's not really solved a great deal. You know, I don't mind goal line. Goal line is, is, is you know, it's black and white, isn't it? You know exactly what it is. You know, even offsides to an extent, but going sent to the, getting sent to the monitor and, and being made to relook at things, I think can make things difficult. I, just quickly, I, I didn't think that the Mings one um, was a sending off. I, granted, it, it looked pretty gruesome afterwards. But I don't necessarily think that every injury suffered on a, on a football field should result in a, a sending off. You know, I think if you thought, if you look back on the Jota one against Tottenham, if you didn't think that that was a red card, which I didn't, um, it was an attempt to play the ball, um, then I don't really think you can think the same with Mings. I thought, you know, he, he sort of, he, the contact, it's not an aggressive contact, is it? So, it, it's just a difficult one, and yeah, I think VAR puts more spotlight on these decisions than, than perhaps necessary. And, and, and apart from the fact that all of that is that you guys were in the stadium, I didn't even know what was going on, why a goal was ruled out. And those inside the stadium, I think, should be the, the people that are certainly looked after. And for you to not know what's going on, I think is um, I think is pretty poor as well. So it's not it's not a good situation. Neither is the amount of time wasting that is going on. And, <laughs> and look, I mean. I, Again, it, it, it stinks of sour grapes a little, doesn't it, when you, you're moaning about time wasting after a game. But I do think that the we are seeing more and more teams time waste. I mean, Newcastle are one of the worst defenders this season and they're in the top four. So it's not just, you know, smaller t- clubs trying to get an advantage. 
Um, so, Gorsi, did you, did, what did you think of that on, on Saturday? Is it just something that fans of clubs like Liverpool have to suck up, or is is it a problem now in football? Because granted, they did add ten minutes on the end, which I think was good. But as Klopp said, within that ten minutes, there's more time wasted again, and, yeah, yeah. and yellow cards for goalkeepers. It, just, it makes no difference, does it? A goalkeeper will take that fucking all day long. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, I think they added on 21 minutes in total, didn't he? But, um, yeah, I think Aston Miller have had seven yellow cards off a time waste in this season. Three of them were out on field on Saturday. And, yeah, that's what they said in the, the post-match press conference. Yeah, it, it, it's funny because, you know, referees pretend like they're all, you know, wise to your antics and whatever else. And you think, oh, well, I'm adding it on. You can carry on doing all that, but I'm adding it on. And then you get a booking for time wasting. But... And, <laughs> There's absolutely no chance that Martinez was ever going to be sent off for time wasting for two bookable offences for time wasting. So the referee can book him once, and Martinez is happy to take that all day long because you know he's not going to get booked x amount of times to be suspended, is he? So um, you know, referees can try and pretend that the wires it, but it could go on for as long as, as long as he wanted. Martinez could have could have kept all that up all for five straight minutes, and he would not have got sent off. Um, it's just frustrating to watch it as a spectator, isn't it? When you see it happening, um, I think there was a kind of study in, into it earlier this season in terms of how, how often you know the, the ball's in play for games, and it's only ever between like 55 and 60 minutes or something like that. Um, there was a little bit of a crackdown to to um, to get wise to it during the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of those games seem to be you know six, seven, eight minutes added on for the first half and second half. Um, but yeah, it, it does disrupt the game. But I think, to be fair to Aston Villa, they had a plan to frustrate and get Anfield a little bit anxious and a little bit annoyed. And, and it worked to a T. Supporters were, were frustrated. The players were getting annoyed. And um, I don't think Liverpool really deserved to win, to be honest. Uh, but I did think that once they scored and that 10 minutes went up, I thought it was all set for a Firmino winner. But it wasn't quite to be. No, it's not really about whether Liverpool deserve it or not. Theo, but it's just in the sense that sometimes I get quite frustrated that the inaction towards time wasting, you know, the, the 10 minutes added on, and I'm sure people who think the opposite would say, but there were 10 minutes added on the end, but, you know, I, I sometimes think the referee within that 10 minutes should be saying, well, we're playing 10 minutes, and if you if you hold on to the ball out of play or whatever, it keeps going on, and we'll play another 15 if we have to, because you're you, you we're going to make sure that that ball's in play and that you're not... Um, running the t- running the clock down. I mean, I, I go back to remember when Simon Mignolet was was booked for, um, for holding the ball and gave an indirect free kick away for holding the ball too long um, in the um, it was against Bordeaux in the Europa League. I've never ever seen a goalkeeper punished for that before or since. It, it's one of the it was one of the strangest punishments, and he got a lot of stick for that. And I I, I thought well. He was he was fully within his rights not to expect to be punished for it, but we never see that. We never see a goalkeeper catch the ball and then told to sort of get on with play. Instead, they 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 seem to bend the rules. So is is again Theo sour grapes or or is is there something that could be done or is it just one of those things that you just have to put up with? Maybe that's the answer. Indirect free kicks, like as Gorsty said, there's no real punishment. One yellow card. Like, oh, the worst thing that's going to happen is you pick up five or ten before the, the cutoff point and you get a suspension. You know, you, you play that gamble, don't you? There, there are things that, that can be done. I think timekeeping in the game is very inconsistent. Like, we can say, oh, you've added on however many minutes for, for time wasting. 
but it still adds up to a hell of a lot more. There are games when if you break it all down, say 30 seconds for a substitution, 30 seconds for a goal, well, we're getting a lot more substitutions in games now for a start. Like, There is different ways you can manage the clock here. You could just stop it every time the ball goes out of play and then sort of do it like rugby, right? Clock's at 90 minutes, no stoppage time. Next time it goes out of play, it's game over. There are ways to manage it here. But then at the same time, you don't begrudge sides using these tactics. Like Liverpool have used these tactics before in the past. Like when you fordle up against Barcelona in a Champions League semi-final, you hold it in the corner, don't you? You try and see the game out. It's just when sides like Villa are come to Anfield and it's so, so obvious from the very first minute that that is exactly what they're going to do. They're going to try and kill the game at every moment, take the momentum out of it. Any small knock or injury, go to floor, absolutely milk it. Goalkeepers grab the ball, going to go down to floor the floor and take ages to kick it out. Uh, it's ridiculous. But then there's a hypocrisy to it as well because there was one where Luca Dean went down injured in the first half I think clutching his back and he was injured let's be honest because he took a second knock to the back in the second half got really booed for it but he actually went off injured so he was clearly feeling something but he went down and he was down for an absolute age Liverpool got the ball back they counter-attacked but they should have just pumped it long because he'd have been playing them all on side they didn't realize that but Emre was screaming up and down jumping up and down on the sidelines going absolutely mental this Dinier still down clutching his back yet he suddenly stops when Villa get the ball back and go on the counter-attack themselves. And then suddenly Digne's back to his feet, sprinting forward to try and join the attack. They don't help themselves here. But then I think there's lots of things in the game where if you really wanted to properly approach it, you can say, this isn't okay, this isn't okay, this is okay. What are we going to do to solve this problem? VAR's one, officiating's another, time-wasting is that. But football's always been stuck in its ways. It's like, this is just tradition. This is what we're used to. I think how long it took for goal line technology to come in and it's only because as you said that that's black and white no one has any complaints about that but these other things that are a little bit more grave there's always going to be debates and disagreement well no time wasting here i think that wraps us up quite nicely At the end of this podcast we'll be back on friday to look ahead to that game against southampton the final one of the 22-23 premier league season and look ahead to the summer and all that comes with it we'll see you then throughout Listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.